Hey, Sammy, how's it going? Good, how are you? Yeah, this is BJ. Good, man. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for your film, The Return. So we're even. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sammy. I do my own stunts, Yunan. And I've returned with a wonderfully quirky episode. The Return is a sci-fi horror movie written and directed by BJ Vareau. Thing is, when he's not writing or directing, BJ is, according to his incredible titles on IMDb, a stunt driver, a stunt performer, and a stunt coordinator. Yes! This dude, he's fallen dangerously. This dude, he's driven dangerously. And sometimes, this dude's even been killed dangerously. This is so cool. So, of course, as we talk about his film, The Return, I also want to know, how does what he does as a stuntman, how's that different from Evil Knievel? Shout out to Evil Knievel. That dude is dope. As for different, his movie, The Return, it starts out as a horror. It's all creepy cool, and then slowly becomes a sci-fi something. I can't say much more, but man, it's twisted. This conversation is so fun. Some of the movies we discuss. Aliens. Total Recall. Robocop. The House on the Left. Toys of Terror. House on Haunted Hill. Sudden Death. And of course, BJ's movie, The Return. Now screening at Blood in the Snow Film Festival. Okay, we totally gotta get into this. Stunts, making movies, and old school movies. Yes. Congratulations on uh, winning Best Feature, HP Lovecraft Film Fest. Uh, And your previous short film, uh, Echoes in the Ice, that's also a Lovecraftian kind of sci-fi short story. Uh, So how does HP Lovecraft influence your Lovecraft? See what I did there? Making magic happen. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I guess, um, you know, the way it all kind of started was when I was uh, probably in my uh, early teens or maybe a bit bit younger. I was reading uh, Conan the Barbarian, you know, by Robert E. Howard, the Mm. the Pulp Fiction and um, through Robert E. Howard, I eventually discovered H.P. Lovecraft, and I thought it was a really interesting style of storytelling in that a lot of it had to deal with existential dread, fear of the unknown, and um, I, I found that to be very, uh, very interesting. So around 2017, as I was, you know, a few years ago, and I was, as I was uh, kind of moving up in my uh, career and I was making more shorts, I wanted to do something that was uh, Lovecraftian in nature. And I wanted to do something that incorporated some VFX as well so that I could use that moving forward on some of my projects. So uh, basically what we did was um, I applied to this festival called uh, Dead North up in Yellowknife. And um, and we got in. So basically how that works is you submit an idea and then you have a month to film it. So uh, I wrote the script on Boxing Day of 2016, submitted it. And once it was approved, we shot it in three and a half days, got all the VFX done and uh, sent it off to Dead North. And then from there, it kind of just sent off a little domino effect. We got to go to Telefilm, not short on talent at Cannes. Mm-hmm. And then it went to a slew of other festivals as well, including the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. So that was my first contact with that festival. And I believe that was in 2017. Yeah. And then here we are. That a thrill to get in there. Oh, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of, my, one of my goals was, okay, if I make this film and it's Lovecraftian, I would love to go to Portland and I would love to go to the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, both of which uh, mm-hmm. I did, which was great. 
And um, I guess it just started to pave a bit of an inroad with that festival. And, um, you know, obviously as a fan of Lovecraft, I got to meet other fans of, of those types of stories as well. So when this first feature came out, it, uh, as, as uh, Brian and Gwen from the HP Lovecraft Festival mentioned, uh, it, it held a lot of the hallmarks of cosmic horror. So luckily, we won Best Feature, and I'm super pumped, and uh, it got a really good reception there, and I've been in contact with a lot of people because of that, so it's been really cool. You already mentioned Conan the Barbarian, you mentioned HP Lovecraft. Those are uh, primarily books, but did you also ever wander into like comic books, EC Comics, Marvel, any of that good stuff? Oh, like, do I, do I dabble in, in yeah. reading comics and whatnot? Yeah. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I love, I, I was raised on comics. So I was like, uh, I mean, I was a kid in the early nineties. So I was in the era before all these comic book movies even hit the screen. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was one of those kids that was like, Oh, could you imagine if they made a Spider-Man or if they did Avengers, that would be so cool. And then here we are now and it's just taken over. So, uh, yeah, actually, uh, as a director, I feel like that was even a very, you know, light introduction to just storyboarding for film as well. I think, you know, you're reading a very visual medium. Mm-hmm. And then what about the film side then? Like you recently in September, you tweeted out an image of four movies, which were Total Recall, The Running Man, <laughs> <laughs> Robocop and Aliens. Uh, so were those kind of yeah. like your foundation, I guess, for lack of a better term? Uh, you know, I, I, I love, one thing that I love as, as just a fan of film and as a filmmaker is um, I, I love the decadence of the 80s. I just feel like they got away with a lot more back then. And mm-hmm. um, it's something that moving forward, I would really love to emulate within like the energy and the scope of my film. Um, so yeah, those particular films, I believe the tweet was, tweet four films that you love more than anyone that, that anyone else that you know. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I'm a I'm one of the biggest fans of, of all of these four. So uh, I really, yeah, I, I love like that, you know, that kind of that ultra violent, um, very, uh, very high production design kind of stuff. So, I mean, like I said, moving forward, those are all, those are all little benchmarks and hallmarks that I want to tackle along the way. Yeah, for sure. Like Total Recall is an entire trip. Like, oh, amazing. whether, whether over, it happened over, or not, yeah. or like uh, the Johnny Cab, the whole universe that they built, like... For an Arnold movie, it's a lot of fun. And then when he shoots Sharon Stone, he says, consider this a divorce. Like, it's wall-to-wall. Like, <laughs> it's a lot of fun and yeah. sci-fi. And it's, but it's like you said, it's just a lot of, I guess, indulgence, right? Like, it just rises all this yeah, together. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you actually you hit the nail on the head there, Sammy. Total Recall, the way I explain it to people, is it is basically it's just a series of highlight reel moments. It's like the whole narrative is structured, but just one scene after another with something memorable that happens in almost every single scene. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. I know we'll get into your film in a second, but I also just want to touch on Robocop because that should have been a disposable movie, like just like a, like a generic box office, but it's created like TV shows and comics and cartoons and it keeps going uh, with no sign of slowing down. Yeah, I agree. Robocop has been quite timeless actually. Um, Like you said, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's a, one question that I always ask myself, and, and sometimes I don't know if I even like the answer, but like when I watch a movie from the 80s or the early 90s, or, or really from any time, I ask, if that movie came out now, does it still hit like it did then? And I just wonder, because, you know, the nature of, of movie-watching experiences is changing all the time. But, I mean, I, there has to be something to be said for these films, because, you know, there's been full-on decades of other movies that have come out, but still we come back to Robocop, still we come back to Total Recall, Aliens. There's mm-hmm. something about those movies that really sets them apart and makes them amazing yeah and they also circling back to you they also tread into the kind of uh, horror and sci-fi 
I know RoboCop's not traditionally horror, but it's still a very frightening like film. Like the the Detroit that they had in the that they depicted in the movie, that's a terrible place. That's a horrible place. You're right. Aliens, of course, yeah, is horror yeah. sci-fi. Like this, also too is kind of like where we're getting to for your film, The Return, because you describe it in uh, Bloody Disgusting as The Return starts as a classic haunted house film, and as it progresses, the science fiction edge starts to bleed through. We want to take the haunting subgenre and turn it on its ear. <laughs> That's exactly what you guys did. So, can you give us a better <laughs> sense of how you describe the return? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot of there were a lot of elements that we tried to play with in the film yep. um, as we sure. as the narrative evolved. So, yes. so what we did was, um, you know, like just like I said, we started with a very classic haunting house. You know, uh, Roger returns with his two friends to take care of his dead father's estate. And he gets into the house and we as the viewer begin to discover that there's an entity there. But one of the goals that we had through both the way that the haunting takes place, but also through the score was we wanted there to be an evolution and we wanted it to be organic. So over the course of the film, as he's, because there's, as you've seen, uh, there's a bit of a mystery element to it. He's putting together the pieces and we as the viewer again are, are kind of along for the journey with him. And um, now, I guess I'll ask you this first. Should I be spoilerizing things or should I kind of keep it a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit more broad? I, I, to be honest, if we're going to be honest with each other, I think even if you spoiled it, I think it wouldn't even make sense when you said it out loud <laughs> just because you don't see it coming. Okay. But yeah, so just give a general thing because I think you are going to probably like let it circulate for a few more film festivals and stuff, right? So uh, we'll be good and just like give a little bit of a tease, tease the audience a little bit. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess uh, at about the midway point, there's a big there's a big hinge that takes place when he's dealing with uh, the ther- a therapist that he knows, and um, and from there, as as you'll see in the film, a lot of things start to change, both uh, in the way that he's uh, dealing with his flashbacks, but also within the score. It goes from less of a classical score with like single notes and that you know these haunting kind of melodious bits to something with a little bit more of a sci-fi veneer. So it's all driving towards the big finale. And um, that was one of the things that was most interesting for me was to try to take those two genres, sci-fi and horror, marry them together in a way that hopefully is fresh and new mm-hmm. and um, to, to bring something out in, a, in a, uh, a genre that I feel is a little bit underrepresented. I feel like there's not an incredible amount of sci-fi horror, as weird as that sounds. Um, so we were hoping to kind of, uh, you know, stake our claim for a little, little plot of land there on the, with the return. Yeah, so as you said, the the movie is called The Return, but originally on your um, IG, you had posted a poster for it, and it was originally called Homecoming. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so that title works too, though. <laughs> yeah, actually, they, they both work. Yeah. So it, oh, what, yeah, absolutely. What yeah. prompted the change then? Oh, well, I mean, um, so like you said, uh, we felt that Homecoming was a really... Uh, you know, a really good way to look at the film with uh, Roger coming home and kind of having to face this fear of this thing that was haunting him from his childhood that's come back. But uh, but then uh, Julie Roberts came up with a show called Homecoming on uh, <laughs> on HBO. So we said, well, we don't really want it to be lost in the shuffle when people are trying to look up our film. So mm-hmm. we, ch- we decided to change the name to The Return, which I think also works uh, on multiple levels, right? He has to come home. Mm-hmm. This, this entity in the house has come back. So, you know, on a few levels, I think that I think the title works. Yeah, and it has a bit more of a haunting element to it than uh, than Homecoming, actually, which I also like. So as far as like re- renaming the film as The Return, I think it has a bit more of an ominous tone to it. Yeah, it works. In the first few early scenes of the movie, there's a couple of scenes that take place in a young girl's bedroom, 
and you guys filled it with really creepy dolls. What was the doll process <laughs> yeah. like to determine creepy or non-creepy enough? <laughs> Actually, we had a really awesome uh, art department for that. Uh, Jason Wilkins and Scott Adoller, those were two guys that helped tremendously on the film. And, uh, you know, interestingly, a lot of it just comes down to clearances. What dolls can we legally use and which ones are, you know, are, are safe to be on camera? And then from there, we said, yeah, that one's creepy. This one can be our, our hero doll for the creep factor. Let's put this one up against the radiator. So, uh, yeah, it just became like a schoolyard pick of the best ones that we could use. <laughs> and you mentioned the score. Like, when you're you are the co-writer on this movie, so when you're writing certain scenes, are you also kind of figuring out as well the score at that point? Or is the score kind of like an idea that you're going to use later on? Because sometimes people add that stuff later on, obviously, as filmmaking goes along. But are you doing it from the beginning process, or is that something that you added? Oh, that's a good question. Um, generally, when I'm writing, um, I might be listening to music when I'm when I'm working on a script, and I use that as motivation, um, where I'm like, oh, this could be cool, or it just could be something that's really uh, motivating me to keep writing. So it might not even tie in super intrinsically to the core of the film, but uh, just whatever keeps me writing is always good. I, I generally try to do something that matches the, the theme and the idea of the project. However, I don't really think about what the score will become just yet, although I do one, one thing that I do is I will try to find reference songs that I can show the, the composer, mm -hmm. but I don't like actually using temp tracks in the edit because I don't like training my brain to associate it with, with music I can't use. So um, I'll, I'll show the composer stuff that I like, but I won't actually put anything into the edit because I don't want to be, you know, you know what I mean? If you just keep hearing it, it becomes muscle memory. And then when you hear something different, it's hard to kind of break free and, and start to see the new, the new score or the new music, um, you know, for its intended purpose. So I actually try to stay away from temp music for the most part. But uh, Kevin Cronin did the, the composing, and we had a chat, and we were talking, okay, like, what, what's our, what are some of the core elements that we want to do? And I said, well, obviously, he's dealing with grief. He's, uh, you know, he's lost most of his family, um, and a lot of it's coming to terms with uh, some of the things he might have done um, at a younger age that come to light. So, um, you know, ultimately, we kind of settled on something that had a little bit more of a melody to it at times. Um, something that kind of falls in line with, uh, oh geez, what's it called? Uh, House on Haunted Hill. Like a little bit, you know, something like that would have had a bit more of an emotional hinge to it, you know, mm -hmm. where that film kind of dealt with family. This one also has a friend and family dynamic to it as well. So we kind of worked off that and then we deviated once the sci-fi element started to come in. It's interesting how you keep uh, referencing, like, you just mentioned like House on Haunted Hill. Like uh, you use like... Um... I guess, uh, a shorthand, right? To kind of create the language that you want while you're building this world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, that's, that's a great way to look at it. So a lot of it will just come back to um, having a discussion. He'll, he'll, he'll crack something out. I'll give it a review. And um, for this particular film, actually, uh, Kevin did a great job. I feel like there were certain segments where we had very little, I had very little notes because uh, he, he has done such a good job of reading the beats of the scene when to bring the music in, when to pull it out, when to feather off, like all of that stuff really worked very well. So that made the score portion of the post-production process a little bit lighter in terms of how much lifting we had to do, which was, which was nice because there's, as you know, there's a lot of stuff going on when you're in post. There's like, you know, edit and coloring and mm -hmm. uh, a Foley and, and visual effects. And oh, it's just, just the, the list never ends. So it was really nice that uh, Kevin was just, had his finger on the pulse of, you know, where the film needed to go musically. So we've been talking about people behind the scenes, behind the camera. 
Uh, let's switch gears mm. now and talk about the cast. You have primary three young, talented people. You want to kind of mention them and uh, Winnipeg represent as well, right? That was a twofer. A lot of uh, Winnipeg. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess the way that I'll, I'll kind of start this little section here would be um, I work in stunts here in Manitoba, in Winnipeg. And a few years ago, I, I had the pleasure of uh, stunt doubling um, Richard Harmon from uh, the 100. And uh, so we had a brief chat and we, we you know, spoke a bit on set. But um, so we, we basically had a brief uh, acquaintance uh, on set. And then a few years later, um, when we put out the national call, his agent reached out and then the casting director uh, called me up and she said, hey, if uh, Richard Harmon were to you know, be interested in the film, would you, is that something you'd be interested in? And I said, oh yeah, for sure. If he wants it, it's his. Like there was no debate. I'm familiar with his work. He's really good. So he read the script. He liked it. And we had a chat on my phone. And then from there, he was in. He was the first guy that we signed. And then from there, things started to fall into place pretty quickly. Like you said, everybody else in the cast is from Winnipeg. Echo Anderson, she plays Jordan. She's, uh, you know, she's uh, Roger's best friend. And Sarah Thompson is Beth. And uh, they're both really, really awesome. Echo, I think, did a, a great job, particularly in the, uh, in the audition. Mm-hmm. Uh, she laughed and we're all like, well, that's, uh, <laughs> I think we're done here. We can, we can, uh, you know, finish up today, which was, that's a good feeling to have too. And then as luck would have it with Sarah, after we shot the return, she ended up getting an audition and became, uh, one of the cast members of the 100 following this film. So <laughs> really it was kind of cool. Like the interconnected, you know, ways that things can work. So, you know, as it turns out now, both Sarah and Richard are both, you know, from the 100 franchise, mm-hmm. uh, the CW show, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, although Winnipeg didn't fully represent. I mean, I think you shot this in summer, so he didn't get that Winnipeg winter in there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm from Winnipeg, but I am not a fan of the winter. Yeah. So I'm I'm a good job. Uh, I do a good job being a hermit uh, in the colder <laughs> weather. And um, I mean, if I have my way, I'm going to try to shoot in late, <laughs> late spring, early fall or summer for sure. But if I can avoid the winter shoots, yeah. I will do that for sure. I, I don't blame you. And you also had... Uh, help me, I just want to make sure I get the name right, but Kristen Sawatsky as the entity. Mm-hmm. Yes. So how? Yeah, do you, she's great. Yeah, how do you direct a ghost then? Like, because uh, she had kind of <laughs> she was kind of creeping all over the house and stuff, right? So how do you? What kind of body language or what kind of expectations did you give a ghost in, or an entity in this case? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good question. Actually, going back to casting, um, Richard was the first the first person that we signed to the film. However, the first person that I had in mind to give a part to was probably Kristen, because when I, I knew that we had the ghost entity, I said, well, she, she's going to be able to pull that off. And I work with her a lot on the stunt side of things. So I'm, I'm very familiar with what she can do. She has a, she has a background in dance and she's very, um, you know, she's very flexible and very body aware. So I felt like um, I could give her directions to do things where, you know, she'd be slinking on the ground and I could be like, yeah, move like this or do that. And she also brought a lot of her own, ideas to the way that the creature would move and um so that part was really fun because uh you know the part where the ghost is essentially crawling out of the vent i mean obviously there's a little bit of accentuation there with the effects but we actually kind of had this small little box for her to crawl through that we shot and (laughs) she rocked it so Mm -hmm. she found a way to get through and and it was really cool so you know 80 percent of the of the movement there was, was captured. And then we just, like I said, we, we accentuated in post, but um, no, she was great. And uh, anytime I can work with Kristen, I would, I would uh, definitely be down. Yeah. So you mentioned you do stunt work and I know like a lot of people kind of work in film industry 
and then they kind of graduate to like directing or writing their own films. But generally, that that process is like uh, it's a writer or an actor or producer or somebody else like that. Uh, so stunt is kind of an odd uh, jump, I guess, from like stuntman to like uh, director. Are you learning <laughs> a lot on uh, film sets, even as a stuntman? Because you're kind of coming in already, like when things are all set and stuff, right? As a stunt dude. So are you learning enough, like as a film school, from all the different film sets you're on, from the different directors you're working with? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there you can always take something away, and if you keep your eyes open, you can say, "Hey, that that looked really cool, and it worked out very well." So you know, um, I'll keep that in mind for when I start to prepare for my next project or whatever the case might be. But I think you're right. Obviously, I have my one career stream where I write and I produce and I direct, and then I also do my stunt work. And I think the two actually come together very well because uh, stunts is is a department that, uh, you know, can be very complicated and obviously comes with a little bit of risk at, at times. And uh, But it also teaches you a lot about, like, the energy of moving the camera and how to work certain certain action sequences. And for me, as a filmmaker who wants to do stuff in horror, sci-fi, action, like, fun, fun genre films, mm-hmm. those are all tools that I can start to apply in how I approach uh, my own films. So um, I, I actually think it's it's a really good... Um, it's a really good um, place to be coming from uh, moving forward because uh, there is a bit of mystery to that to that uh, art, and um, I think if I can bring something to it and make it look really cool, uh, then then you know it just puts me in a better position to keep moving forward and making more projects. Yeah, so picking up on that thread of like, there's a mystery to your art uh, when you're doing stunts. Like on your IMDb, you're listed as like stunt driver, uh, stunt performer, stunt coordinator. So for people that are not in film, like for civilians and like, they, I guess the basic question is, how are you different than like, say, Evil Knievel? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, actually, that's a very good question. Um, because a lot of people associate stunt, stunt performers with Daredevil. Mm-hmm. And while sometimes they might do something that looks similar, um, there's a lot of variations between the two. And I think the biggest one that's most important is uh, for, for stunt performers, you want something to look really cool. Uh, you want it to look gnarly and painful, <laughs> but you also want to be able to do it three or four or five times without actually being like really badly hurt because it's <laughs> it's very hard to to get a second take if if you know you just jump off a roof for real. So you know sometimes there's a little bit of trickery going on where you know a little bit of it is sold in the angle. Some of it is maybe, maybe there's a mat off screen. Like there's things that can be done that that can sell sell the. Uh, the danger, but by doing a little bit more safe and being able to control your conditions a lot better than maybe what a daredevil could do. I just want to focus for a little bit on your some of your stunt work because you've done some really cool stuff. You were just recently in Sudden Death uh, as one of the bad guys, I think, Delta. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was actually a really fun time. So I play like you know uh, a guy named Delta, who's essentially just one of the one of the main bad guys henchmen. But uh, we, we're running around the arena killing people, and uh, actually. Um, my good friend Sean Skeen, he plays Veda, and uh, like in real life, we're we're really good buddies. And on set, we basically got to be a pair of bad guys that are moving through the arena. So we got to hang out all the time on set, and eventually, our demise kind of culminates in a fight against Michael J. White <laughs> <laughs> with a with another guy named Maurice Crump. But uh, that was really fun. We got to uh, have a big throwdown with Michael J. and mm-hmm. um, we got to see Maurice Crump do his his good work. And uh, that was a very fun day on set. That was actually just a very fun job in general that sudden death was probably one of my highlights just because it was just so fun to be on set everyone was really cool Mm -hmm. so getting beat up by michael then if you had your choice 
of like if you were another like a henchman and then like the the good guy was coming to beat you up uh and you could get <laughs> beaten up by anybody that was a good guy like arnold yeah. or jackie chan or anybody like that who which which good guy would you want to get beat up by well i think we'll go back to my uh to some of the films that we referenced before with total recall and uh i'm a running man so okay if we're, we're talking uh an, a classic a classic hero mm. I, I'd, I'd love to get taken out by arnold that would oh, be very yeah. cool and if we're talking yeah so i'd say arnold for old school like classic and if we're going contemporary uh i think it'd be really fun to get uh get beaten up by or killed by the rock <laughs> oh yeah yeah arnold would be good too because he'd kill you and then maybe have a good line with it you know what i mean yeah exactly so, yeah make it memorable right <laughs> that those are the movie deaths that you want yeah Totally. And you also have a one, I think, I'm not sure if it's out yet, but Toys of Terror? You worked on Toys of Terror? Yeah, I worked on Toys of Terror. That I believe that just came out on digital. So, um, yeah, you can check that one out too. Um, one thing that I will say about that film is um, I got to chat with uh, the the company that did all of the um, uh, stop motion animation for the toys and whatnot. Uh, I know uh, one of the gentlemen's name was Mark Caballero and uh, those guys were really cool. So um, I, I spent a lot of time you know, in our downtime where you, where you can kind of steal away and chat for a bit, we were we were just kind of chatting and hanging out. But uh, oh, I knew they were good guys. Once uh, once I saw Mark wearing his Toho Scope shirt, which <laughs> is, uh, you know, a shout out to like the Godzilla films. I was like, oh, OK, yeah, me and this guy are going to get along pretty well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they were they were really cool guys. Yeah, that movie looks super creepy. I saw the trailer recently. I'm like, oh, man, I'm in. I want, <laughs> I want to see this one. So I don't know if I can. <laughs> I might have to sleep with the G.I. Joe nightlight on that night, but I'm like, I still want to yeah. see it. Yeah, oh, he'll keep you safe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there's one that you did. Uh, you only did two episodes of it, but uh, Tales from the Loop. There was his Amazon mm, Prime. Yeah. That was a fantastic show. I don't know if you did you actually end up watching the show as well, or you just kind of worked on it and just went on to something different. But it was a fantastic. No, show. No, I did watch a bit of it. Yeah. 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 It it looks amazing. Yeah. Actually, um, I don't know if they're doing another season, but uh, it's a shame because that show was really pretty and it was really cool. It had like a very, uh, very interesting style and tone to it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was just, um, I think it was just a little bit too weird. It's on Amazon Prime. And mm-hmm. it's like uh, it's like a basically a friendship with a, a girl and a robot. Uh, but it's I think it was just too, and, and it's also Mark Romanek too, like a really prominent director. But I think it's just too weird mm-hmm. uh, for American audiences a little bit. You know what I mean? Like in terms of what they normally expect uh, for friendships and things with robots. Uh, so I don't know how right. well it did in Europe, but I think in, in North America, I think it's like that's a little too weird for the audience. But still, it was a dope show. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, thanks, man. That's awesome. Yeah. So when you're watching something big, like a big stunt, like uh, one of those Fast and Furious movies or like Tom Cruise and Mission mm. Impossible, uh, we mentioned Arnold. Yeah. Uh, can you uh, appreciate that, those stunts as like like us as civilians do? Or do you get all excited and want to figure out how they did it? Or like, can you see some of the things? Uh, <laughs> like, you know how like a magician watches a magic show and he knows the, the, where, yeah. where the hands are and things like that. You know what I mean? Can you watch or can you yeah. enjoy? I think I can still watch. So usually what I try to do is I, I try to disconnect and just watch it as a, as a film first or a movie. And then, uh, you know, so I can get my, my enjoyment factor out of it, but you're right. There, every once in a while there were, there will definitely be a thing where I'm like, Oh shit, did they do like a split screen? And did they comp that in? Like, I wonder mm-hmm. if you use the mat and just painted it, you know, <laughs> you, sometimes you just can't help it and you want to solve the riddle. But for the most part, I find I'm pretty good 
at, at the disconnecting, like turning that button off for a little bit and trying to suspend my disbelief. But, but you're right. There's a few times where I'm just like, Ooh, how the hell did they do that? How much of that was VFX and how much of it was real? Damn, that looked real. You know, and, <laughs> and you do start to kind of peel the layers of the onion off to try to get to the bottom of it. But uh, I think that's a good problem because you might be, you might be taken out of the movie for a moment because you're now starting to reverse engineer maybe something that happened on set. But that doesn't mean it was so damn cool that you couldn't help but you know, think about like, you know, all of the, the immense creativity that was going on behind the scenes as well. That's why I use the analogy of like a magician, because it's like um, I have a f- couple of friends who are magicians. And so I've seen when they do a trick and then people just start going all over, like all over the place trying to figure it out. It's magnets. There's a plastic <laughs> hand and like it's all these over the top things. And it's always a very elegant solution. As you said, with like some stunt work, sometimes it's just a mat off camera. You know what I mean? It's a very simple solution. It's not always this big over-the-top thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes, yeah, you'd be, you'd be surprised at how many times, uh, you know, the uh, the cleanest path to victory is just a straight line, that, and it's a very simple, a very simple solution. But uh, you know what? That's that's a good thing to have because um, you know when you overcomplicate things, that's that's when things start getting really tricky too. So, you know, for for each for each situation you encounter, and every scene is different. Um, it's always good to have a few options, but ultimately the, uh, the, the simplest one comes out on top, you know, um, obviously there's exceptions to the rule, but that's, I think that's, I think that's pretty fair assessment to say. So as we're wrapping up, uh, the return is now playing at blood in the snow film festival for you. And like you, we kind of opened at the top, uh, how you won best feature at HP Lovecraft film fest and you got to go to Portland. How are you enjoying the the festival circuit? Because you've been kind of uh, popping up. Your films and your work have been popping up uh, at different horror film festivals or scary type film festivals. So how are you enjoying the festival experience? Yeah, well, I guess um, around, again, like around 2017 was when I made Echoes in the Ice. That's when I started to kind of get around on the genre circuit. So, you know, we did Toronto After Dark this year at Blood in the Snow, which is really cool. Um, uh, Echoes in the Ice got to go to a lot of places. So I, I got to attend... HP Lovecraft in Portland back in 2018. However, everything's gone virtual for this year. So we've done uh, Horrible Imaginings, uh, Salem Horror Fest in Salem, Massachusetts, which is so cool. Obviously, uh, Blood in the Snow is coming up, HP Lovecraft. And we have a few more coming up. We have New York City Horror Fest, which is huge, and I really wish we could go, but mm-hmm. this damn pandemic won't, yeah. <laughs> won't let that happen. But, um, uh, but yeah, okay, so everything's gone virtual. And, I mean, I got to say, as a filmmaker, I love meeting other filmmakers. I love talking to producers and figuring out what their strategies are for how they produce their films. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like that's just something that uh, you, you can't quite get as much out of a digital forum. Mm-hmm. But to the credit of all the festivals that we've been a part of, they've done a really good job trying to connect us with Zoom calls and breakout rooms and Q&As and fun panels and all that kind of stuff. So they're really working hard to try to keep things going. And, and as filmmakers, I mean, you can't help but appreciate all the hard work that they're putting in and they have to figure all this stuff out too. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for me as a, as a, as a debut filmmaker, um, with my first feature, I, I'm supremely appreciative, uh, also to blood in the snow, like what, what, uh, Kelly did with lining up these screenings on super channel. I mean, come on, that's crazy. He just, he tapped into a huge audience and, uh, you know, if, if we can't do it in person, he found a way to bring it to everybody where mm-hmm. they can check it out and really try to, um, expose people, to the type of work and the talent that's going on across Canada, because there's some really cool films and stuff. Today. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't want to harp on it, but I, I, I think too, it also must be a little frustrating for you as a filmmaker, because as we alluded to, there is a nice little twist uh, about two thirds into the movie where it starts to kind of shift, um, 
and uh, it kind of goes from a less, little less horror to more sci-fi. And mm. that would have been neat to kind of sit in the audience and kind of see that reaction and like see as people kind of like grapple and realize what's happening and what the, how the film has shifted. Uh, that would have been neat to kind of see the, the temperature of the room, see how people are reacting, if they're following and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's always cool to gauge the response of a crowd that's checking out your film. And it's, uh, you've actually touched on an interesting point in that, like, uh, because everything has gone digital, it's people watching it at home in their basement, in their living room. Are they pausing it? Are they going to get snacks in the kitchen? Whereas when people go to a live venue to watch it, they've chosen to go, they want to check out a movie, they're sitting in a dark room with other people who want to watch a scary movie. And like that energy is really good. People feed off of each other and it's so cool. And I wonder how much that's been affected just because, like I said, people are sitting behind the screen or they're sitting on their couch and then they got to let their dog out to the washroom and they're, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that could take away from the experience. But I mean, that's not just for me. That's for, that's for anyone who has a festival go- uh, film going on at one of these festivals right now. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the return is uh, going to be playing at a couple more film festivals. Are you working on anything next? Uh, like, are you writing anything now or hoping to shoot something? I know it's also the pandemic still going on, but are you working on anything or hoping to shoot something soon? Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple things that I'm cooking up right now. Um, one is a, again, I'm, I'm maybe staying in the lane here for the Lovecraftian creature feature. I got something that I'm cooking up there. That's really cool. Uh, I've been also kind of working on this other idea. That's kind of like, I know what you did last summer, but mixed with it follows and the thing. So Ooh. I think that could be really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I've been kind of starting to uh, soft sell that one to some people and they've been getting excited. So <laughs> mm-hmm. we'll see. I have a few ideas, but right now the one that's closest to being a go, like if, if I had to pick something to like get up and go with right now, it'd be that maritime creature feature, Lovecrafty and creepy kind of beach vibe, uh, you know, really gray Atlantic water and a lot of fun there. I think a lot of practical makeup effects as well, which I, which I love. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hoping to kind of dive into something like that. When Stephen King was starting out and submitting like Salem's Lot and Shining and all that to the publisher, they were worried that he would be pigeonholed, right? Like they're going to just call you a horror writer. Mm-hmm. And for your work as a director and what you're just talking about now and the stuff you want to keep making, do you worry necessarily about being pigeonholed or are you kind of like going to judo move those into like branding? And that's <laughs> the proper way to kind of yeah. call it. Yeah, yeah no, that's a... That's a, that's a very real thing, I think, you know, um, once you've done a few films in a certain genre and a certain kind of style, you know, people might pigeonhole you and that might not be a bad thing to start. Like, obviously I said, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm working on something that's also Lovecraftian. So from there, I think I would like to shift and expand and keep things fresh for myself on the creative side. But uh, yeah, for me right now, it's kind of like first come first serve. I have a few ideas that are, like I said, getting a little closer and if we can really get some traction on, on one, then We'll, we'll take it and we'll make it move. But, uh, um, you know, I got like an action idea and it's actually, there's no, there's no real horror or sci-fi elements. It's just a really fun, wild kind of post-apocalyptic um, violent idea. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I, the way I look at it, yeah, I think it'll be, I think that one will be really cool. Um, maybe, maybe after we uh, cut out, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in on this one a little more because it's, it's a little bit wild and I want to keep it under, under wraps, but <laughs> yeah, uh, sounds good to me. Um, yeah. But, uh, oh, geez, where's I going with this? Oh yeah. Right. So, um, one of the, one of the things that I like to model my, one of the directors I would like to model myself after is Danny Boyle. Like, I feel like that guy somehow as a director has been able to do any type of movie that he wants where you can still see his style and his voice and the story that he's telling, mm-hmm. but he's very diverse. He's done 20 days later, 
Sunshine, Slumdog Millionaire. Mm-hmm. Like that guy just bounces all over the place and all of his movies are really cool. So, I mean, you know, if I can, if I can start to push back against the pigeonholing of being just a horror guy or just a horror sci-fi guy, you know, that would be the technique that I would use where I'm still incorporating my voice, my style and my tonal elements, but just starting to apply it to a wider range of films and stories. Well, speaking of your voice, where can people find you online, find about more about you or the the film, The Return, if the next film festival is going to show up in or whatever else you're working on? Where can people find you online? Mm. I would say I'm probably most active on Instagram. You can find me there. It's just my name, at BJ Vero. Uh, that's the same. That's my same handle on Twitter. I'm also there a bit. I'm not quite as active, but I'm, I'm there a fair bit. And you can also follow us at the uh, for our film, The Return. It's at the return underscore film. But if you follow me, like if you come add me, I can I can tell you where to go if you want to follow the film or any of the updates for that type of stuff. So just hit me up on Instagram or Twitter, and I'm happy to chat or or whatever you need. All right, uh, that's it, BJ. We covered uh, the return, uh, which has of course uh, lots of like fun sci-fi and uh, as well as horror and haunted house and creepy dolls, as I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Got to throw in the creepy dolls. We cover. We talked about Arnold. We talked about cool movies, and we talked about stunt work, and how you got beat up uh, in the recent movie Sudden Death. <laughs> yeah. That's a good day, I think. Awesome. We yeah, we the... definitely covered a wide range. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, as he said, uh, the return is currently currently playing at Blood and the Snow Film Festival, which you can watch on uh, the Super Channel. And uh, I'll post links and stuff in the in the show notes. And then, uh, as you said too, it'll be uh, showing up as well in the New York uh, horror. Was it called the New York Horror Film Festival? New York City Horror Fest. Yeah, New York yeah, City Horror, horror Festival. Yeah. So we'll get to see it kind of floating around. Thank you, BJ. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time, and uh, yeah, look forward to chatting again in the future. Fun, right? That was writer and director BJ Vero, and I'm Sammy Yunan. That was so quirky. That's probably the better word, quirky. Do follow BJ's socials to check out if and when The Return is playing at a film festival near you. Shout out to Blood in the Snow Film Festival for setting this up. Before I go, I highly recommend check out Tales from the Loop on Prime Video. This is one of the descriptions. I'm just going to read it word for word and see if you understand any of this. Tales from the Loop follows the interconnected lives of the residents in the fictional town of Mercer, Ohio. Mercer is home to the Mercer Center for Experimental Physics, an underground facility known as the Loop. It is here that researchers attempt to make the impossible possible. Look, I understand it doesn't make sense, but it's a show you got to see to believe it. The first two episodes, I think... Or at least at least the first two were directed by Mark Romanek, who of course gave us the Johnny Cash uh, video hurt and a few other fantastic music videos. I'll close with a question I asked BJ. If you could be killed, if you could be taken out by a classic movie good guy, who would you want to take you out? Would it be Arnold or Chuck Norris, Bruce Lee? Uh, John Wick is a modern one right now. I kind of like Arnold, though. Let me know at my pal Sammy for all three. IG, Twitter, and Facebook. My pal Sammy, and let me know if you could be taken out by a classic movie good guy. 
Who would you want to take you out? My pal Sammy for all three. Thank you so much for listening to me in the Netflix world. Stunts, yo!